Let's just lift our hands and praise him right now. Is he worthy of praise this morning? Is he worthy of praise this morning? He is always worthy of praise. Amen. So, Father God, we just come right now and we praise you. You are a good God. We thank you for your love. We thank you for everything you do to us and for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your provision. This morning we come and we honor you. We praise you because you are a good God. You are a good God. Let's just sing that part again. We just sing it one more time. Just give him a clap offering right now. Thank you, Father. Well, what an honor and a privilege we have today to come into the house of God and worship Him because He is a good God. He is always worthy of His praise. And this morning as we come in here, regardless of where we're at in our journey, He is always worthy of His praise. And this morning we want to give praise due to His name. We want to welcome everybody this morning to Spruce Grove Community Church. If this is your first time visiting, a special welcome to you. We're glad you're here. If this is your home, we love you. We're glad you're part of our family. I think God wants to do something special today. I just feel some of you, this might be that first Sunday, and I feel he's already saying, you know what, I want to touch you. I see what's going on in your life, and I want to heal you. Today is not a mistake that you came through these doors. He has designed this day. He has planned this day because he wants to touch you. He wants to walk with you, and he wants to know you. He's a good God. No, I just want Di to come up real quick. Come on up. She shared something with me last week, and, you know, um, Mark DuPont was here last week. And he shared with us a few things, but one of the things he said is, 
he prayed for boldness to come upon his body. And Dai shared something with me, and I, I just thought it was worth sharing and something. Yeah, you guys can sit down for a minute. So why don't you share that first? Sit down, because I might be a long time. No, I won't. I'll be super short. Um, it was kind of an interesting thing after the Friday night session, and he had talked to us about boldness, about this new boldness that was coming into us. And I've even felt since the battle for Canada that a new courage was coming upon the church, that a new level of courage was just coming into us to stand for certain things that we never would have stood for before, that kind of thing. So we're leaving the meeting. It's about 10 o'clock at night, and I'm like, we don't have any chips at home. I think I really need chips. So we're driving up there, and I said, Ken, pull into here. So we went into Century Convenience Store, and I'm pulling out, you know, many chips. And I go to, and the lady there that works there, she actually owns the store, and she's been there probably for 25 years. And, like, for the life of me, I cannot remember her name, but uh, maybe some of you know her, but she's there all the time. And so I, I said to her, how's it going? How's business going? And she says, she says, it's not good. She says, there's 7-Elevens opening up all over the place. And she says, people just don't come in here. She says, we're, we're paying our bills, but we're not making anything extra. Like, it's really tough. And so I, all of a sudden I saw myself in that moment going, I saw myself laying hands on the, on the thing, the table there, and, and blessing her. As I saw myself do it, all of a sudden I was doing it. I wasn't even really purposing to do it, but it, I, I was like, well, I just pray a blessing over this store and that the Lord would, like, so I just, I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> anyway, she goes, thank you, thank you. So I just spoke a blessing over the store and over her life, and it just was a quick, very natural thing to do, and, uh, but I just felt like the Lord wants to, as we're postured here, She's just over there, and we want to bless her. We want that to be a blessing to her. I don't think she knows the Lord at all, so I, I feel like as we bless and maybe even pop by there and buy something from the store, that that actually will start to filter out. And as we praise here, even today, that this praise, it sends shockwaves out. It does actually send like this, uh, like a pebble in the water, you know, like just rippling effect out that actually blesses way beyond this room. And so that's our good God, and that's what he does. We're going to pray for her, but uh, let me tell you something. Part of worship is actually going out and loving people. That's part of worship, is actually doing it. And so I'm going to challenge you guys as a church. I just feel this. Is I want you all to stop by the store this week. Just go buy something and bless her. Right? Just bless her. I'm telling you, it may not mean a lot to us. It may not seem like much, but I can guarantee you by the end of the week, If we get by that store and we bless her, something's going to happen in her life. So, Father God, we pray for this lady right now in the name of Jesus. Father, right now, for whatever reason, your eyes are upon her. And you're saying you want her, you want to touch her, you want to bless her, you want to heal her, you want to provide for her, you want to restore her. And, God, we come in align with that and we say in Jesus' name, touch her, bring her to salvation, God. Be with her, guide her, lead her, instruct her, Father God. Get her saved in Jesus' name, Lord. But we pray the blessing of the Lord upon her. Let's stand to our feet. I want to read a scripture. We're going to go back into worship. It's out of Proverbs 30. It says, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Today we get to give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name because he is a good God. Let's worship him.
So we've got a number of people that just uh, are going to pray for our nation right now. So let's just agree with them as they come and pray for the nation. Tyson, come on up. Father, I just feel your heart of worship is here, God. So I just ask that there would be a release of worship and an understanding of reverence, God. That reverence would fall upon your church, God. That a heart of reverence and worship, Lord, that we could actually express our hearts to you, God. Just as David knew what your heart desired, God, I ask that a reverence would come upon your church, God, that the Holy Spirit would come upon this nation, God, because it's not us that can change things, God, and it's you, Lord. So I ask that we would learn how to worship, we would learn how to have a reverence and come before you with fear and trembling, God, as a nation, not just this body here, Lord, but as a nation that we would learn how to worship you in fear and trembling, God. So, Father, we thank you that this nation was founded on biblical principle, God. And as you spoke to me this morning, you were talking to me about officiating. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we call forward officiating in the public space in the name of Jesus. Father, we say a backbone is being restored to this nation, God. And what has been done and hidden, Lord, will be exposed in the name of Jesus. We say coast to coast, north to south, east to west, have dominion upon this land, God. We establish your dominion, God. We establish your ruler, rulership. We establish your authority. We say that your name, Jesus, above every name, God. We say that it's not enough. We say that it's not enough, God. We say that you need to increase and we need to decrease, Lord. We call for the governance of God. We call for the governance of God. May declaration be on our lips, Lord. Lord, we pray that your face would be seen. That people would see you for who you are, where the devil has masked you and put on a mask over, over your face in a sense. That, Lord, that, that people would see your goodness and your truth and your life and your love, where they're blinded. Lord, the devil has blinded people, but you are, you'll be glorified. I pray that you would be seen as who you are in this land, in this land, in this land, this, this kingdom, this dominion of Canada. You want your your face seen, that people would come before you and see you for who you are. And there would be a healing of heart and uh, uh, ripping out the roots of rejection and hatred and bitterness and lies. And God, that you would be exalted. So I pray those, those walls, those masks that the devil tries to put over your face because it blinds the people. I pray that the blinders would come off. I pray that people would see you for who you are. Yes, God, we pray for a grassroots turning. God, we, we confess that we've sometimes thought that a, that a governmental turning would produce a revival, but God... We pray that between now and October, before the election, that there would be a grassroots turning to you, that people's hearts would be turned to you, that they, 
that the government change would follow the people's change. Father, we just ask for a spirit of repentance to fall on this land, a spirit of repentance. And I say, turn, turn, turn into the loving arms of your Savior, Jesus Christ, who is Lord over this nation, who is Lord over your hearts, who has everything that you could possibly need or want. And Father, I say, forgive us for embracing unrighteousness, for embracing the flesh. Forgive us, Father God. Forgive us, God. And I say we are the sons and the daughters of the righteous King. We are the sons and the daughters of the righteous King of heaven and earth. And we release the spirit of life and not death. In Jesus' name, we love your life and not our own, God. We say that you are the way you are the truth and you are the life in Jesus' mighty name. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray. Your people pray. Lanu, your people pray. And we turn our face to you, Nashuan, Jesus Christ. And we say that we turn our face to you and we call upon your name. That the people who humble themselves and pray, oh, that they might hear from you, that you might speak from heaven, that your will would be done in this election, in this land, in these people, that your, that your name would be glorified in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our cities, in our towns. We are your people. Bring the whirlwind, oh God. Come and shake what can be shaken, oh God. To this nation, God, bring the whirlwind and shake what can be shaken, God. To the highest of heights, God. To the lowest of lows, God. Come and shake. Come and shake that are not things that are not established on truth. Lies that have pieces of truth, but the enemy has twisted, God. Come and shake. Come and shake, oh God. Come and shake, oh God. And God, I just ask that you would continue the work that you're doing of restoring the family in this nation. God, I see that we do not have the infrastructure to hold your glory in this nation. And I see that it's actually the family units that will be the infrastructure to hold your glory in this nation. And so I just ask for a repairing of the breach, a repairing to the families, and that through the repairing of the families and your work at that grassroots level of in the family, that you will restore the family of Canada, the family, the call, the heart for this nation. So continue this good work, God. I pray for the children of Canada that you would rise up and know your God. I pray that you would know your God. Oh God, every generation, every generation in Canada would know your God. You know, just as we go back into worship here, Di, just saying it a second ago that every tongue would confess. And as every tongue confesses, everything shifts and changes. 
So God, we agree with that, that every tongue would confess that you are Lord. Thank you, Father. So as we go back into worship, realize we're not just contending for ourselves today. We're contending for a nation, a nation to be saved in Jesus' name. Well, you know, sometimes we need to get our hearts in line with his heart. And I feel today God was very clear in sharing his heart that none would perish, that none would perish, which means the body of Christ has to get to that place where we are praying relentlessly for the things of God to begin to take place on this earth, that our hearts will begin to participate in whatever it is that God wants to do, that we will join him, join with him in this great mission that he has to change this world, to change this planet, that not one would perish. Father God, we thank you for who you are. And God, right now I stand before you and I say thank you because I was one of them. I was one that didn't know you and you reached your hand out to me. And I say thank you in Jesus' name, Father. God, I thank you that you have a heart for each one. And I pray that you would place that heart inside of us, God. Father, that each day that we would not forget to pray for our nation, that we would not forget to pray for our province and our city. Father, our mayors and our, our uh, government, Father God, Lord, may we not forget because we truly want your will to happen in Spruce Grove, in Alberta, and in Canada, and in the nations. And so, Father, we choose to participate in this with you, in doing our part in praying for these nations to be changed in Jesus' name. Have your way, Father. Amen. So now we've got, uh, uh, I think Jim's been an elder forever in our church. Uh, he's been part of this church for so long, and we're just honored and privileged to have him come and share with us today. So let's welcome him. She says, she says for so long, and actually, yeah, we're coming right up on 32 years being in this church. Yeah, so 32. So what I've got for you this morning is, is actually... Well, let, let's, let's open in prayer first. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I pray that you would shine the light on your word today. That, that out of this jumble of stuff I've got here, you would bring something that matters to your people today that would change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start by just setting some foundations, okay? Over the last little bit, we've had a couple of people in um, at our church. So Dean Briggs has been here a couple of times. Uh, and now Mark DuPont's been here a couple of times, and they've said some things that I want to add a, a little bit of maybe just background and foundational information to, because when they come in here, you know, they've got to kind of hit their stuff real quick, and they don't necessarily go deep. And as I was going through some of this stuff, the Lord kind of showed me a few extra things as, as well, and something Mark said, Mark DuPont said on Sunday just sparked something in my heart that I, I, I just kind of went, oh, 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 I, I, I've got I to get that out. So... We'll see if this all holds together at some point. I want to talk to you about gates, first of all. And you'll, you'll, figure, you'll figure out why. I'm going to throw a few things out. They'll pull together, hopefully, eventually. Okay. So gates. In Scripture, I want you to understand some things about the city gates. Now, clearly, gates were a defensive mechanism and, and, a, and a portal into a city. But that's not the kind of thing uh, that I'm, I'm that concerned with right now, because that's the obvious side of gates. But there's a cultural side of gates that we don't really necessarily understand anymore now because we don't do it. We don't have gated cities, uh, and we have, you know, federal governments and provincial governments, etc. 
But there was a thing about the gates of the city in Scripture. So I'm just going to run through a couple of things. I don't know, Matt, if you're going to be able to keep up or not, but it's okay. And it's uh, pretty much all NLT, okay? So in Psalm 127, verse 5, it says, How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. This is talking about children having kids. So after talking about my brother with 12, he's got a quiver full. It makes me quiver to think of it. Um, He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. Okay, so what's happening here? Well, the gates are a court. Okay, That's that's where court kinds of things are happening, is at the gates. He's confronting his accusers at the gates. So the gates are functioning as a court. Make sense? Proverbs 31, we all know Proverbs 31. I have a Proverbs 31 wife um, verse 23, it says, And her husband is well known at the city gates where he sits with the other civic leaders. Okay, so the gates are where the civic leaders are. Makes sense that that's where the court is then as well. The civic leaders, that's your, your, your city council, effectively. The government of the city happens at the gates. Jeremiah 14.2, Judah wilts. And commerce at the city gates grinds to a halt. All the people sit on the ground in mourning, and a great cry rises from Jerusalem. So this is, this is a, a judgment being prophesied over Jerusalem. But again, we see that commerce at the city gates stops. So it's where the market control is. It's the control of the market. There are markets throughout the city, but the city gates is where the, the definition of you know what's what's even fair, and, and, and what kind of weights and measures we use, and those kinds of things, all happens at the gates. Lamentations 1.4, the roads to Jerusalem are in mourning for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan, her young women are crying, how bitter is her fate. So when there's nothing going on at the gates, the city's dying. Okay, so we're getting a picture of the gates, and the last one here, In Lamentations 5.14, Jeremiah says, The elders no longer sit in the city gates, and the young men no longer dance and sing. So again, we, we come to understand that the elders, again, the leaders, the elders, the governing authorities... Um, the marketplace leaders that all had the courts that all happens at the gates. So when we refer to the gates, you know, it doesn't say it, it, it's not talking about the court. It doesn't say the, the the group of elders. It doesn't say the ruling council. It just says the gates, the gates, the gates. Right. But the people of the day understood when you talk about the gates, that's what we're talking about is the the ruling, the marketplace, the judges, the courts. Okay. Later on, we see in, in the book of Ruth, we catch, uh, let me, rather than reading it all, let me, just, let me just tell you sort of the story quickly. So Ruth is this, this Moabitess woman who uh, has, she has married an Israelite fella, and then he dies. And uh, now she's coming back to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And, um, and now they're poor. Because, of course, the land that came from her husband and her, and her sons, uh, sorry, the culture was such that as a woman, she had no real hold on that land. So you've got these two women who are both widows, and there's just not much they can do. And so eventually they come up with this, this idea where Ruth basically 
uh, approaches a very rich relative, a close relative of, of her former husband, and, and basically makes it known to him that she would be quite willing to become his wife. And he's an older guy, and uh, I don't quite know why he didn't have a wife and heirs at that point, but he didn't. And yet she offered herself as a wife, and eventually uh, they do get married, and she, in fact, they are in the lineage of, of Jesus, okay? So it's kind of a, an interesting, certainly of King David. Yes? Yes. Okay, there we are. So all of that to say, uh, Boaz then goes to the city gates and he calls the leaders, the ten leaders from the town, and asks them to sit as witnesses. And they do this whole transaction whereby there's actually a closer relative, and he would get to own the land if he's willing to marry the girl. But marrying the girl means you have to produce an heir, and you have to actually give a full inheritance to that heir. And this guy doesn't want to do it, so because you know he'd love to have the land, but he doesn't want to have to give it away. And so Boaz goes ahead and marries Ruth. And the whole point of this long involved thing is that all of that gets registered at the gates of the city. So again, it is, it is where very important long-term transactions take place. All right. That's done with gates. Sort of. So let's look at Matthew 16. Starting in verse 16. And this, again, Dean Briggs spoke on this a little bit, so, you know, but I, I want to go a little bit deeper. So it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, there's, there's something I want you to know. Caesarea Philippi was not a place that Jews lightly went to. This was a Roman uh, sort of city, been put together by Herod and, and funded by Rome. Uh, I've been there. It's amazing because the ruins are, are still, I mean, there's still a full amphitheater there uh, that you can actually, they actually do concerts in it today. And it's the one that was there then. Uh, so, I mean, Jesus saw this same amphitheater. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's this amazing thing. Now, to go to Caesarea Philippi, it was, it was actually... So a lot of the, the Jews at the time called it the gates of Hades. It was that awful. It was a place of, of carousing and, and partying and, and, and brutality and, and all of these sort of Roman things that were yucky. And furthermore, what were Jesus and the disciples even doing there? Because it was at least 30 miles out of the way from where they had been and where they were going. If I'll, I'll leave you to, to, to read the the scriptures there in Matthew to see where they were coming from and where they were going to. But they went like 30 miles, and they walked. They went 30 miles out of their way to go to this horrible place. And then while they're there, Jesus says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father, now you notice it's Simon, son of John, 
Because at this point, it's funny because as Matthew wrote this, he called him Simon Peter. But the interesting thing is he hadn't picked up that name yet. He was just Simon at this point, okay? So he says, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. So bang, he just picked up a name. Now I think it's important... Unfortunately, here's where the English translations... Now, I'm going to do that Greek thing to you, okay? Well, here we go. What he said was, you are Petros. Petros means rock or pebble. It's a... Petros is a rock. It's not rock. It's a rock, a pebble, okay? A stone, Maybe stone might even have been the better, better translation. He says, so you are Petros, Peter, which means rock. And upon this, and then the Greek word is Petra. Not Petros. Petra, which is massive rock, like a mountain. Petra. So he says, you are Petros, stone, and upon this rock, I will build my, uh-oh, another word, says church. It's an unfortunate English translation of the word from the Greek. The Greek word, now I've got to look it up, I've got to find it here again. The Greek word that should be translated church for us is kyriakos. Kyriakos is a gathering of people, supporting each other, socializing together, being, you know, being a family together. That's Kyriakos. The word here is not Kyriakos. It's ecclesia. Ecclesia should not have been translated to church in the English. And unfortunately, throughout Scripture... The word ecclesia is translated church. In fact, everywhere where you see the word church in the New Testament, all but three of them come from ecclesia, which I think is really unfortunate because we think of a gathering of people, of family, people supporting each other, people uh, communicating with each other and fellowshipping together, which is a very important thing, kyriakos. But ecclesia is a different thing. Ecclesia is the ruling council at the gates. Ecclesia is an assembly of leaders. Okay? It is not Kyriakos, and it's a very unfortunate thing that in, in the King James Bible, the translators did it, and then everybody kind of stuck with it because we've got this thing called church now. And, I mean, the Germans have the word for church. The Dutch have a word for church, and it all comes from Kyriakos, and yet, and, and so everybody's Bible talks about kerik or church or, you know, whatever the thing is, um, but largely from that original translation, and I wish it had been translated assembly even. If it had just been assembly, we might be able to do it. Let me, let me just go on for a moment here, because I'll prove some things to you here. But anyway, he says, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. We know that verse a little bit more commonly 
rather than all the powers of hell. It actually says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, what have we just said gates represent? The ruling council, the authority, the strategies, the courts, the commerce. So when we talk about the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we're not necessarily talking about you know, these doors that open up into, into hell and we're supposed to knock them down somehow or, or, or something. What we're really talking about is the ruling power, the strategies, the courts, the commerce, the, you know, the, 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 the leaders of hell will not prevail against it. And that's what would have been understood when Jesus said it because that's what they understood as gates. Um, I will now read that passage in the Passion Translation because otherwise I would have to do it all in the Greek interlinear with you and it would take the rest of the morning and none of you would enjoy it. So, in, in the Passion Translation, it says, Simon Peter spoke up and said, You are the anointed one, the son of a living God. Jesus replied, You are favored and privileged, Simon, Simeon, actually here, son of Jonah, for you didn't discover this on your own, but my Father in heaven has supernaturally revealed it to you. I give you the name Peter, a stone. And this truth of who I am will be the bedrock foundation on which I will build my church, dash my legislative assembly. And the power of death will not be able to overpower it. I will give you the keys of heaven's kingdom realm to forbid on earth that which is forbidden in heaven and to release on earth that which is released in heaven. So do you understand that we are to be his legislative assembly? That we are supposed to be binding and releasing on earth those things that are bound and released in heaven? That we are supposed to be taking authority at some level? And, I, and I'm, I'm just looking at this going, for 2,000 years, I'm not sure the church has been appropriately taking authority. Okay? But that's really what we're called to. So, most broadly... A civil assembly, right? And a, you know, a, a governing assembly, a legislative assembly. Now, when we're supposed to say, if the gates of hell will not prevail, that's, again, my comment earlier, the strategies of hell, etc. And I think one of the sort of the, the, um, the things about the strategies of hell is they tend to be very clever, okay? They tend to appeal to something in us in many ways, and they tend to actually have been effective at, at a certain level. But we're supposed to be able to prevail and win over them. One of the most effective current strategies that I'm seeing right now, and I want to speak to you about a little bit, is to make righteousness itself seem out of step with culture, and in fact, to make it seem hateful rather than loving. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly effective strategy because sometimes we, we get held bound to it. We're, we're actually scared to speak the truth, even to speak it in love, because we know it's unlikely to be received that way. And we justify not doing so because we don't want to be shut out because then we lose our opportunity to influence. So we don't want to be seen as being rigid or or hateful or old-fashioned even. 
And yet at the same time, truth wins and love wins. Jesus was ultimately loving. And Jesus was ultimately righteous, and he spoke the truth. He got killed for it, just saying, okay? Um, So we can't necessarily expect that it's going to go a whole lot better for us. However, it doesn't mean we avoid it. And, and, and I found in my own life, so here, here we go, a little, little bit of testimony here. Uh, I'm a diplomat. So what I do, it's kind of the, 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 the gift that God has given me. I get involved in things, uh, often even at work, for example, if we've got some high-level you know, issue going on with a, with a client and our, our sales folks and our account management folks have, have come to a place where they're you know, not able to... Uh, you know, kind of make progress or whatever. Sort of the final thing is I'll get called in. And uh, somehow, for some reason, that tends to then work, okay? So whatever that is, the Lord has given me a gift in, in diplomacy to be able to make sure that the two sides understand each other well, and so then we can move forward with things and, and, and generally rescue what, whatever the, the thing is that's going wrong. As a diplomat, then, I don't like to offend people because that offense, of course, puts up walls, and now you lose the ability to, again, to speak into the situation. But I have found that I have been held hostage to that. I've allowed myself to be held hostage to not wanting to bring offense, and so I don't bring truth at all. And the Lord has really convicted me on that in the last about year and a half. I remember it started in Montreal at the gathering in Montreal, and I was walking down this aisle, and, and, and all of a sudden I could just see it. I, I could just see, and, and, and the words that God dropped into my heart was, well, if that salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it only to be thrown out and trampled underfoot? And I thought, oh, no. Am I losing, my, like, have I lost my saltiness? Have I, have I lost my ability to, to change the environment around me? So I just want you to know that, again, while I want to always speak in love, I want, I want love to be the driving factor, my own personal commitment is to not be held hostage to to sort of social norms that go against the truth of God's word. Does that make sense? Um, look, between Hollywood and the government and various human rights commissions and the educational establishment and TV commercials, we are continually bombarded with messaging on sex and sexual activity, on debt and debt slavery and how good that is for you and the need for material goods and material wealth, and issues of identity and an individual's right to choose any identity they wish at any time. Unless, of course, their choice casts shade on some other historically underprivileged group, at which point that's even a bigger sin, and we call it cultural appropriation, and you can't be doing that, which is interesting because now we get to play off some of these things against each other, 
And I actually, uh, I know uh, my brother Gord has been uh, posting on Facebook in the last two weeks or so his strong desire that the indigenous groups would buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which it looks like it may in fact happen, which would be absolutely fabulous because it sets these two kingdoms up against each other now all of a sudden. First of all, I love it because it's good for them. Okay? I love it because it's economic activity. It, it's, it's, you know, it's just good for those communities to have that kind of economic activity and, and jobs and you know, something to, to, to sink your teeth into that's actually going to turn a profit and be worth doing. So that, that's very cool. I love it on that side. But the second side is it sets up this second kingdom of this sort of environmental and, and, and whatever movement. By the way, we are supposed to be good stewards of our environment. Do we see that in Scripture? Did God call us to be good stewards of the land? So let's do that. Let's not suddenly decide that all of that stuff is just complete nonsense and we throw it out and we don't care. And we, you know, absolutely not. We are intended to be stewards of this earth. So... Uh, I think there's lots of good things that we should be doing in terms of being good stewards of this earth. But I love the but 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 let me start by saying a lot of the environmental movement is a strong humanist religion. Okay, so now you get it set up. You've got this this one kingdom now against this other kingdom. I just think it's going to be hilarious to kind of watch it play out, and uh, and. And I believe that the, it's going to be the indigenous peoples who actually win in this one. So that's, that's got to be a win across the board. Amen. Right now, the demand, and, and we're seeing it all over the place, the demand for young students, we're talking grades one, two, three, to choose a non-traditional identity is being pushed on them where, in fact, gender norms of yesterday is a cop-out what? But it's almost like, oh, fine, and then you're not thinking if you're just choosing what the, the default was instead of understanding that the default was the default for a very good reason. And that's horribly confusing for a child who's trying to find their way and trusting that adults around them will give them guidance. But we are promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the ecclesia. The legislative assembly of Christ, his ecclesia, the gates of hell, will not prevail against. We, we just saw that in Scripture. It's very clear. That strategy will not win if we take our stand. Make, our, make sense? Okay, I'm going to change gears here. I'm going to go... This was the thing I mentioned that Mark DuPont said uh, last week that just absolutely kind of... Here's the funny thing. He didn't say this at all. He said something else altogether, but it sparked this in me. I actually talked to him about it in the afternoon, and he kind of went, oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, suddenly I had revelation about something. So here, here we go. I'm going to read from Genesis 25, starting verse 27. This is Jacob and Esau. And as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So, 
Isaac likes to barbecue. Rebecca is a quality timer. She's spending time with her boy. One day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Okay. I'd never framed this all the way properly for myself because this just seems so extreme. It just seems so out there. Like, okay, this is, he's going to sell his rights as the firstborn to his brother for a bowl of stew. That just doesn't, it just doesn't make any real sense. What, what, what's going on here? So you ready for the history lesson? Here we go. Okay. So, in Genesis 17, God is speaking to Abraham. In verse 4, he says, This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abraham. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. And I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants, descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you, and I will give you the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. Wow. This is a big promise, and this is to Esau's grandpa. Okay? And he's giving up his rights as the firstborn, which includes a double portion of the inheritance. When his grandpa just got this massive word about being the father of nations and owning the entire land. And what, what is he thinking? Well, let me tell you something. Abraham lived to 175 years old. Okay? We know that he was about 100 when Isaac was born. Because that's how that worked, Right? Um, you may, how many of you, you, you know the story that with, with Sarah and whatever, and he was 99 at that point in time that he was told he was going to have a son yet, so clearly the son was going to come in and around 100, 101 years of age, that's when Isaac was going to be born. Verse 26, back in, in Genesis 25, says that Isaac was 60 when the twins were born. And when you work this all out, this story would have taken place when the twins were 15. Oh, this was a 15-year-old. Suddenly, things are starting to make a little bit more sense. Furthermore, Grandpa was still alive. So, all of this theoretical wealth wasn't there, and in fact, Isaac didn't have it, because it's not until the next chapter, chapter 26, where it says, 
When Isaac planted his crops that year, he harvested a hundred times more grain than he planted, for the Lord blessed him. And he became a very rich man, and his wealth continued to grow. So the first thing to note here is Esau wasn't living in wealth at this point. In fact, he was starving. He was out hunting. They were living in a tent. So he didn't actually see the riches that we know were coming down his way. He didn't see it. He's a 15-year-old kid coming in starving, and his brother's got this really great-smelling barbecue stew going on here. And he wants some. And his brother says, birthright. And he goes, birthright? What's that worth? We live in a tent. I got one, pair of, uh, one set of clothes, right? Don't even have hand-me-downs because we're twins. And so... You got a 15-year-old kid who can't see the value of what he's giving away. He doesn't see the value. It's just not evident. And so he says, what do I care? I want some stew. By the way, later he did see the value. Um, Abraham probably died about a year after that. And so there were some things going on. And we saw, as we saw in the very next chapter, Isaac got blessed immensely and became very wealthy, and suddenly the financial side of all of this birthright thing became a little bit clearer, I think. Now, um, and, and, and I, want, I want you to understand as well, <clears throat> that, that birthright, that piece of the birthright, actually has two components to it. So this is the other thing. What did he sell? The birthright had two components, and then there was a third thing, which was the father's blessing, which Jacob also managed to steal. But the birthright had two pieces to it. The first is that you're going to be in charge in the family, okay? So essentially, Esau was agreeing that Jacob was the brother in charge now. Kind of an interesting thing for for brothers. I don't know that many brothers who'd be just totally willing to just kind of let the younger... Younger by a few minutes, by the way. Um, But it was Esau's, and he gave it away. And the second was a double portion. So let's talk about a double portion for a minute, because we see double portion elsewhere in Scripture, and I think we always think it means twice as much. doesn't really. So here's what happens. In an inheritance situation, the father would divide up his, his estate by the number of children he had plus one, So, for instance, if he had three kids, he would make four parts, and the eldest would get two of them. Make sense? So, the eldest would get a double portion of what was coming in the inheritance. Everybody else would get their regular portion. The eldest would get a double portion. We see that with Elijah and Elisha, right, where Elisha asks for a double portion. What he was really asking for is, could I be your heir? That's really when he said a double portion. He wasn't like, could I have twice as much anointing as you do? Uh, well, the father can't give twice as much as he has, first of all. He can only give a double portion. But really, the point there was, I want to be your heir. I want to be the one who inherits from you. Anyway, side, side issue. So, I think Esau may have even thought about the promises to Abraham, because I'm sure the family talked about it. I think he may have even thought they were a bit sort of delusions of grandeur, right? We're a nomadic family living in a tent. We have virtually nothing. Um, We're always afraid of raiders. 
because we actually see Isaac lying about Rebekah in chapter 26, lying to say that Rebekah is his sister rather than his wife because he's afraid he'll get killed because she's very beautiful. I'm glad I don't have to worry about the same kinds of things. <laughs> I have an incredibly beautiful wife, and I'm not worried that someone's going to kill me to get her, is what I'm saying. I thought I had best clarify that. Wowzers. Worried about my own life now, yes. Five minutes ago, I was fine. Anyway. Anyway, delusions of grandeur. So, why am I, why am I, why am I saying this? Uh, I, I want to, uh, I, I want to let you know something here. Uh, for all of those of you who are visiting with us this morning, first of all, you're, you're extremely welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, the next little piece of what I'm going to go into here is, is kind of directed to Spruce Grove Community Church at some level. And uh, so, again, if you're visiting with us, you know, feel free to take all of the principles in that for yourself completely, okay? But I, I, I want to direct this to our body somewhat. Jesus said that we as the church are called to be the ecclesia, God's ruling council on earth with governmental authority. And it's easy to say, sure, that's the global church of which we are one tiny little insignificant part. So, whatever. Let's not have delusions of grandeur here. Okay? However, there have been many words and promises spoken over this church over the years. In fact, here, let me show you something. This binder is full of transcripts of words that visiting prophetic folks, etc., have given over our church over the years. Wow. Wow. It kind of goes on and on and on. There's an awful lot of richness in this book. And um, I, I want you to know that that's there. Copies of that could even potentially be made available. And that's not all of them, because I know of some words that we couldn't actually even find in there. Um, some that were maybe given to smaller groups, leadership teams, that kind of thing, that didn't, you know, didn't make it to the tapes of the services and didn't get transcribed. I want to I give you some of those words, and I want you to just think about them for a minute, and then I'm going I'm to talk about kind of where, where that goes here in a moment. So Dennis Weedrick spoke to us many years ago, probably 22 years ago or so. And he said, Spruce Grove Community Church is similar to Morningstar in Kansas City. You're offered a heavy mantle to be a Kansas City North. He also said, this is a gathering place of young eagles, which he said were prophets. He said, Spruce Grove Community Church's birthright is as an apostolic foundation base, primarily a safe place to birth or sow the prophetic into Western Canada. He said that our long-term fruitfulness is not dependent on a spiritual father in the house, but actually on the spirit of sonship being present. He said, I've rarely seen such a contest in the heavenlies over a local church regarding birthright, inheritance, and sonship. He also made a comment about us converting from a cruise ship to a battleship. David Damien's been here a number of times. He said, Spruce Grove Community Church is called to a high purpose. Why such a high calling on a church not located in a major city? 
He didn't have an answer for that. He said, you are dealing with a spirit that takes every prophetic thing away. Some call it Jezebel. He said, this church's mandate is a provincial calling, a national calling, and some will have an international calling. And we're seeing some of that. Bob Jones was here. He said, God will raise up a pastor so that Mark is free to go out. Hey, Chris. He said, this will be a place of prophets. Stacy Campbell said, Spruce Grove Community Church leadership will begin going to the nations. She said, God will open direct connections to government officials. And you know that that's starting to happen. We've had a number of government officials come and fellowship with us um, and, you know, have built some relationships. Um, we've also been prophesied to be a healing place for wounded eagles. Now, eagles in Scripture generally represent either strength and weight-bearing or an offensive battle position swooping down or protection, protected with your feathers and wings, right? Uh, also vision and, prof and the prophetic. So my question is, can we be good at welcoming in these wounded warriors and prophets and then actually releasing them again? Because it says they would come for healing. It doesn't say they would come and stay. We've had prophecies from Bob Jones about having 200 intercessors present and having an influence in a 150-mile range. Can you bring that up for me, Matt? Now, it's going to be a little hard to see here. That's 150 miles drawn directly around our church property, okay? It, uh, it just barely touches Airdrie at the bottom. Hinton is just outside on the, on the west there. Lloyd just outside on the right. Lloyd's probably actually mm, 20 kilometers out, but it's all right. Way up over Athabasca into the north there, Swan Lake, Swan Hills, all of those, uh, Slave Lake, they're all in there. That's a big swath of the province that we are supposed to cover in prayer and intercession and have influence over. You can leave that up if you want. So, all these words and a whole lot more. Do we, like Esau, disdain them? Because they're just too big and we can't see it. Maybe because we aren't even all that close yet as far as we can tell. Esau didn't know that Abraham was going to die the very next year. It could have been weeks later. I can't, you know, the, the timelines in the scripture aren't close enough for me to be able to tell just right when that happened. Are we afraid of these words because we know our own penchant for falling into pride? Are we actually afraid to step into it because we're scared we'll get a big head and then God will have to discipline us? Wednesday night in prayer, uh, there were actually three or four prayers that came forward that were, in fact, blessing all of the other churches in the region and, and, and honestly, you know, making a declaration here that, look, we don't need to be seen at all. In fact, if the Lord's doing great things in Parkland County and in northern Alberta and whatever, we're thrilled, even if we're not even actively part of it other than in prayer. And I think that's great, and I think it's important that we continue to, to evaluate our hearts and ask the Lord to show us what's in the, our hearts all the time. 
But I'll tell you, if we stay in the one ditch because we're worried about the other ditch, it doesn't matter. We're in a ditch anyway. So if we're, if we're, if we're so worried about getting proud that we won't step into actually the authority that we've been called to, well, we'll give you the right. What God did. Okay? So we don't want to be stuck in the one ditch because we're scared of the other ditch. That's a great strategy for paralyzing people. We would way rather be in the middle of the road, right, barreling down at 900 miles an hour doing the will of God. The antidote for pride is not underachieving. It's continually giving glory to God and recognizing his sovereignty and blessing. I'm going to say it again. I liked it. The antidote for pride is not simply underachieving. It's continually giving glory to God and recognizing his sovereignty and blessing. Yeah. Amen. Or are we actually more concerned with not appearing wacko to our community, particularly to those whose opinion somehow matters to us? Uh, I got news for you. We're already wacko. <laughs> All right. So that's the challenge in front of us. We, 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 like Esau, actually not like Esau, let's be like Jacob. So Jacob's name means, pers- well, his name doesn't, his name means cheater. Uh, Jacob was actually a pursuer of the blessing. First of all, he tricked his brother out of the birthright. Because he could see what could come out of that when his brother couldn't. Then he went and actually stole the father's blessing, which, okay, not great. Later on, he wrestled with God or with the angel of God to the point where his hip joint was out of joint from then on. And this was actually when he was going back to meet Esau at the point where he thought Esau was probably going to kill him um, for having done all that other stuff. Um, but he would not let go. I mean, he wrestled and he wrestled. He got his hip knocked out of, of joint. And he didn't stop. He kept holding on and, and, and until light. Like all the way through the night, he wrestled. And then finally, he was like, release me. Not unless you bless me. What? You realize you're wrestling with God or God's messenger? And when he says, release me, you say, not unless you bless me? Like, this is the pursuit of a blessing, folks. To his own harm, he's going to pursue the blessing. I don't know that he ever stopped limping after that. So let's ask God for the grace, the desire, the power and ability, the grace to function as his ecclesia. To walk in divine love always. To stand for God's truth even when it's not popular. To know how to be a healing place and to have the desire and the energy to do it. Because it doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me at some level. It sounds like a lot of work. There's that grace thing again. The desire and the ability. He'll give us the desire as well. It'll be fulfilling. And we'll have the ability. The desire and ability to walk in humility. And to pursue the blessing like Jacob did. Esau didn't care, 
but Jacob wanted it. God, we want to be who and what you've called us to be. Thank you, Lord. Make us into what you need us to be. Many of you who may have heard me say this before, but it's true. It's, it's been like 20 years now. I don't actually really ever pray, Lord, please use me. I am convinced God's going, I would if you were useful. So I pray, Lord, make me useful. Lord, as a church body, make us useful, Lord. Form us into your image. Create in us what you want us to be so that we can actually become your ecclesia here on earth. That we can exercise appropriate authority in the market, in the courts, in the governmental assemblies. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we take that authority and we ask that you would give us the direction to declare your kingdom into the earth. To declare it your way, your timing, your elements. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why don't we stand to our feet? Thank you, Jim. You know, I'm, I know some of us haven't been here for 20, 30 years, but when I hear some of these words, it's just a reminder of all those seasons and the promises of God and that these promises do not go void. You know, it's just we get to walk through this journey, and when those promises happen, we get to praise his name because he's a good God. And so I believe him. Because he's a good God. That's who he is. And I'm telling you, he has good things for this church, but he has good things for this community and for this nation. We need to trust him and believe him, and we need to be part of that solution, and we need to partner with him. Amen? So let's choose to partner with him and pray that prayer. I love that. How did you word that again? Help us to be useful. <laughs> Make us useful. We, we need that to actually be who we are. Help us to be useful to you, God. Help us to get past our mindsets, our thoughts, our thinking of the way this should be or that should be. No, we want to align with the Father and His plans, and that's all that matters. Amen? Well, I pray the blessing of the Lord upon every single one of you, every single one of you in this house, that He would touch you, that He would move in your lives. I pray for those in this room who are sick, who are dealing with issues, that the Father would just touch you right now in the name of Jesus Christ that he would heal your issues, your problems, your fears, that he would just come and just begin to bring peace to those situations and problems. I pray God would give you joy in your faith. I pray that he would give you passion in your faith. I pray that he would give you an excitement for your faith and for what he's about to do in Spruce Grove and in Alberta and in our nation and the world. So, Father, we trust you. We yield to you in Jesus' name. And we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.